you will just permit me to take a few seconds before I begin to preach to just say what a wonderful and awesome privilege it is to be in your midst this morning. I bring you greetings from the Brethren in Sovereign Grace Community Church, Abuja. Um, you know how near and dear you are to our hearts, and we are so grateful for all your prayers, for all your support, for all the times that you have just asked of us and thought about us. We thank God so much for the fellowship that we share with you, with this entire church, and with the church at large. And I just want to tell you this morning that um, all the brethren love you very, very much. Now, if you will please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. And I'll be reading and preaching to you this morning from Psalm 10. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man 
who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I think we can all be truly familiar with these same questions. And I'm sure most of you here this morning have been in circumstances and situations in your life where trouble has been so burdensome, where the pain that you have experienced in whatever your experience is has been so trying and so severe to the point that you find yourself asking these very same questions. And I think that these questions here in verse 1 of Psalm 10 are the common experience, at least they tell us of the common experience of every believer. Because it is true that if we are to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we must face, we must endure, we must be confronted with tribulation, with trial, with suffering, with all kinds of adversities in various shapes, in various forms, to various degrees as well. And it's also true that for most of you, when you do ask these questions, you are seeking answers to these questions. You're trying to understand your circumstances and in the face of what perturbs or disturbs your heart, what causes you to be somewhat aggravated in your soul. The questions are thrown upwards to God because God is the only one who will give us answers that truly will satisfy the deep longing in our souls when we are faced with trouble. And so I think that these questions are not just confined to the believers of thousand years ago of ancient times but are the common experience of every saint, even now, presently, because we are faced with trouble all the time. There's trouble from inward sin. There's trouble from inward enticements. And these are the internal trials that we face and temptations as well. There's trouble from all around and about us. Trouble from different quarters. For you in your culture and in your context, it could be from the pro-abortionists. It could be from those who sit in the gates and are the judges and princes in your own context. Those who are being elected to magisterial office. It could be from the enactment of decrees and laws and policies that are not favorable for the Christian to live in freedom and liberty in your own society. It could be simply from family members who are anti-God and anti-Christian. And so the troubles that you face really rack and ravage your soul to the point where you throw up these questions and you ask, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? And it does feel that way. It does feel as if God is not near it does feel as if 
You are alone and no one understands your plight. And no one can see or feel or be really touched with an understanding of what you are going through. And you hear that sometimes when we try to comfort brethren who are in this position, when they say things to you like, you wouldn't understand. But here the psalmist, when he poses these questions, it will help us to see something about what it means to live as a Christian towards the tail end of Romans 8, when Paul, in his beautiful way of expressing the love of God that is demonstrated in the justifying grace that Christ Jesus has shown to us in his death and resurrection, he mentions how, by quoting from the Psalms, actually, Psalm 44, he mentions how, for the sake of Christ, we are being killed all the day long, and how we are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. It's very counterintuitive, very countercultural. In fact, some people think that it's even counterproductive to grace and godliness to go through pain and suffering, to go through periods in our life whereby it does feel as though we cannot bear any longer. And so when Paul speaks of this, Paul is speaking of that sense in which part and parcel of the Christian life, we have to go through pain and suffering. Pain and suffering in the Christian life is actually the norm. It's not the exception. And that's why it's even counter-naturalistic, counter-humanistic. The gospel is a call for us to come and have life in Christ. But it is also a call for us to come and die for the sake of Christ. And we die daily. Mortification is one of the areas that we have to die daily because though sin has been dealt with in us, we actually have to continue experiencing the consequences of sin, the symptoms of sin. And for that reason, we will go through the misery that sin has brought into God's world. But Paul helps us to see that It isn't by preventing the experience of pain and suffering that we will enjoy the comfort in the grace of God that is shown in Christ. So for Paul, being delivered up to death for the sake of Christ was not as some see suffering. Again, in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12, Paul says this, that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, that is, if we suffer, we will also reign with him, speaking of Christ. So conversely, if we will not suffer, if we will not endure the adversities and the things that will try us, we will not reign with Christ. We will not experience all that God has reserved for every saint in Christ. And so this question that is mouthed by the psalmist in the outset of this psalm, 
really does help us to see that we indeed are seeking some form of encouragement in the answer to the question. And so this morning, what I would like to do with us all this morning is to help us to see how the psalmist encourages himself when he is faced with trial and suffering, whether internally or externally. And we'll be trusting that the Lord will help us to see these same things. So the first thing that we have here to note is this. If you look at verse 16, the psalmist says, The Lord is king forever and ever. And verse 14, he says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. The psalmist encourages himself with this, that God is king forever and ever. I think for you and I, when we survey the ongoings, the present happenings in our world today, not just in our own setting, but at large, what we see is a lot of calamities, a lot of oppression, a lot of suffering ongoing. And if we are touched with that, sometimes it burdens us to the point that we want to do something about it. We want to be able to help to some degree. And when we can't, there is a tendency to just either become apathetic or try to shut our eyes to it so that we aren't pained within. But what the psalmist does here is he looks to God and he sees that the great king, the great governor of this universe, this cosmos, is indeed reigning. And his reign is an eternal reign. It's an everlasting reign. Indeed, his dominion is forever and ever. And that's the reminder in the times that we do see all that is going on. Because the tendency is for us to look around and think that this God who is ruling seems to have lost his rule or his control over the unruliness and the unruly that we see. There is a tendency for us to think that God has either relinquished control to men and then we just lose sight of the fact that God is indeed enthroned on high and that everything is absolutely in his care and that he is governing this world so perfectly with an order that is so wise and so just. And though we can't make sense of why things are the way they are, what we can know is that God is king and that his rule can never be thwarted. There is a saying that goes, though God's will can be contradicted, it can never, never ever be controverted. Though sinful men can shake their fists and even in moral defiance, do that which is a contravention of God's will, they can never ever nullify God's decrees and purposes in all that He has made. God is indeed in control. And this is a delight for the Christian. So when we speak of the sovereignty of God, this is the kind of thing that it should do and should bring that kind of stability and comfort to our souls. When we are seeing everywhere there's turmoil, Everywhere there's 
upside-downness, if there is such a word. And we can be strong in faith. We can know that this God rules and reigns forever because he is king forever. Amen. So God is not absent. And God has not lost his power in his moral government. And so there is strength to be found there. And if you turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 40, the prophet here makes very, very strong claims in this same regard. Verse 13, he says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Verse 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And turn quickly to verse 21. He asks these questions. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. In the life of faith, perspective is everything. And I think a heart perspective always needs to be Godward. The posture of our souls and lives and our faith always needs to be theocentric and Godward, always. And so sometimes when we do see these things going on all around us, it is so that we are brought back to the center, the object of our faith, that is God, and that we are strengthened in our faith in knowing who God is. And that's the beauty of God bringing us through these troubles. Secondly, the psalmist encourages himself in verse 13 by saying this, Why does the wicked say in his heart, excuse me, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? And verse 14, the psalmist says, but you do see You note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. So he encourages himself by saying that God sees. God is not blind to what is going on in your life, in his world, in every context of everything that occurs in this world, in this universe. God is not blind. It says here that he notes the mischief and vexation that goes on. He keeps a record of this. He's absolutely aware of all things. In Psalm 33 and verse 13, the psalmist says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. In Psalm 11 and verse 4, he says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see 
His eyelids test the children of man. So we can be sure and certain that God always is aware. He always sees and He always notes the ways of both the godly and the ungodly. And never at any point should we ever feel that God is not aware of what's going on. That doesn't mean that we resign not to pray and just say, oh God is aware so that's it. No. But it should cause us to pray. It should cause us to want to be actively involved in everything that God is doing by trusting Him through prayer. And so for the Christian, how this encourages us, and I believe this is sort of what was going on in the psalmist's heart as he thought on these things and said what he said there. It's similar to what is written in Psalm 56 and verse 8, where where he speaks of God having a bottle and that the tears, the cries of his saints, when you weep in your pain, in your discomfort, that God keeps your tears in a bottle. Now obviously God doesn't have a literal bottle where He stores up your tears, but it is expressive of the fact that God is compassionate. He's sympathetic towards His saints. And when you are pained and when you weep and when you grieve and when you go through all that you do see to be so hard to bear, God is aware. When you are vexed by unrighteousness and it pains you so, God notes. He notes both your pain and He notes both the unrighteousness that vexes you and pains you. And you can know this. Christ even said that not a single hair on the head of the saints, not a single hair shall perish. And that goes to show you that God is so very concerned with the minutiae of all that goes on in this world. And we should be encouraged by that. It should cause us to even stand upright, more upright and erect as Christians. And it should cause us to be so delighted in knowing that this is the God who knows us and knows all that He has made. And as we sang this morning, and as we read as well from the scripture reading, the beauty of it is that as God notes all these things, God has also appointed a day and a man by whom he will judge both the living and the dead, that all who are ungodly will be brought to account for all their ungodly deeds and all the things that they have said in their hard and harsh speaking, whether in their hearts, unvoiced, or with their lips, or in their actions against the King of glory. When Christ comes, Christ will make all things right. And even if things are not all right right now, know that the Lord notes all these things and will bring to account on the day of reckoning. So that can encourage you as well. So don't get caught up in that short-sighted notion of trying to shoehorn God into bringing swift justice. Trust in the Lord and wait on Him. 
indeed even adopt the heart disposition of love in praying for those who are the mischievous, who are the vexers of the righteous. Thirdly, the psalmist encourages himself in verse 17 by saying this, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. And here he's, he's encouraging himself by reminding himself of the fact that God hears the cries of his people. God is not deaf to the cries of his saints. Indeed, the Psalms, many of the Psalms, begin that way. O oh God, you hear my cry. O oh God, you hear the voice of my cry. O oh God, you hear my words to you. And you attend to my cry. And you incline or you bend over, you stoop to hear what I am lifting up to you in my pleas. And when we go through these hardships and see all the things that are going on, the tendency for us is to cry. As a child will cry to its parents when it is pained and when it is facing a lot of difficulty and hardship. And even though children can be selfish in how they do that, we can learn something from that. And the fact is this, that God hears. You see, the devil, one of his diabolical devices in trying to accuse and persecute the saints is that he, de he, he desires to persuade our hearts to think that God is deaf to your cries. That's the way of the adversary. And he uses adversarial circumstances to push his suggestions. And it's, it's like when you are really racked and constricted by what you're, go what you're experiencing, what you're going through, it feels as though, why would God allow you to go through this if he was attentive? To your cry. And those doubtful and unbelieving sort of suggestions are there. If you will be honest with yourself, there are so many moments that you do feel that way. And it shouldn't be, but sadly it is. And the joy of knowing that God will help us is in this. It's in that concept of the fact that all of God's ways are good. And that even if we are faced with such trial, and even if we do feel, we have a sense as though God is not there with us in our trial, the reality of it is God is bringing you through that so that you will know that He is not distant and that His ear is near and that His children are endeared to Him. And that we ourselves ought to likewise be strengthened by this fact. In Psalm 34 and verse 17, he says, The righteous cry, and the Lord hears. 
and he delivers them out of all their troubles. And that's a comfort. That's a great comfort to the soul. God's ear is ever attentive. Now, I know that we confess the doctrine of God's impassibility. We believe that God is a God without passions. We believe that God is a God who is unchanging and that nothing outside of God can influence God to be anything other than what he is and that God is moved by himself, as it were. We believe this. However, we don't believe that God is somewhat frozen in an unemotional posture towards his children or that God is unfeeling and as if he's mechanically just ruling over all his creation without being really touched by what we go through. And if you look in Isaiah 63 and verse 9, the prophet helps us to see that. He says that in all the afflictions of his people, of God's people, God was afflicted. God was afflicted. Now this is not to say that we are projecting our own feelings and what you and I go through as humans on God. But it does go to say that because God loves His Son, Christ Jesus, with an immutable love, with an impassable love, and those whom He has chosen in His Son, who are eventually united by faith to Christ, God loves them with that same love which He has for His Son. And therefore, when you are going through the mutable circumstances and situations in life, you can know that there is an unchanging, steadfast, and immutable, and infinite love. It's such a deep love as we sang last Sunday. A love that totally overwhelms everything that you're going through. And it's a love that indeed should cause you, if anything, to be so riveted in faith in God, in knowing that God never will forsake and God will never leave you, even though it feels as though he has. Hebrews 4.15, Christ Jesus, he is touched with a feeling of our weaknesses, our infirmities, and that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. So God loves his children in such a way that even their death is described as precious in his sight. So God hears the cries of the afflicted. Cry to him whenever you are in affliction. Know that God will hear you. Know that God does hear you. Know that his ear is attentive to your cry. And be encouraged in that fact. Fourthly, verse 18, psalmist says, as God's ear is inclined, he will do justice to the father, fatherless and to the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So he encourages himself in stating that God will do justice. And I think that sooner or later, 
later or sooner, God will bring justice in his earth. Yes. And every thought and every deed will be brought to the light. And God, as the righteous judge, will do that which is right. Now, you and I have trouble trying to weigh in our judgment what is right and what is wrong. Sometimes we get that very wrong. And we want what we believe to be just to actually be executed. But God will do justice. And your version of what is just, if it does not accord with God's own ways, which sometimes are past finding out, and you don't get that explanation of exactly how God will mete out his justice, but you do know that he will, and he will do so in due time. God is just and righteous and gracious, and he's merciful altogether. And we have trouble again, conceiving of all these happening all at once. Indeed, especially when you see evil men prospering. In our country, in Nigeria, we see that so much. And it's very hard for the saint to look around and not feel like Asaph. And not consider the wicked and wonder, why are they prospering? Why are they the ones enjoying the comforts of this life? Why are they the ones even in that position where it seems as if they're experiencing serenity and tranquility and, well, sometimes it's a misplaced definition, but peace. And the rest of us are going through trouble and hardship. And we question. But what we fail to see is that, you see, God's ways can be mysterious. And in His justice, what He is giving to the evildoer and to the wicked is actually a judgment of them and for them and upon them. That their experience of the pleasures and comfort of this life is all that they will ever experience and call pleasure and comfort. Beyond which, all they will have is wrath and indignation and the fury of God's displeasure. And that's a frightening thing to think. But it is just in the sight of the Lord. It is right in His sight. And it is good in that sense. And so we can take comfort in that, that God will vindicate His righteousness upon those who oppress and those who walk in unrighteousness. Fifthly, going back to verse 14, the psalmist says, that God will take all of this into his hands. Now, if you just backtrack a bit. Excuse me. Later, in verse 14, not backtrack, but move forward. God will take it into his hands. And he says, to you, O God, the helpless commits himself. The helpless commits himself. And that word commit is the word in Hebrew, it's actually translated as abandons himself. Where you just cast yourself desperately. You entrust yourself. 
You commit yourself to God. And in all of our distresses, this is what we are meant to do. In all the times that we are in dire despair, we ought to abandon ourselves. And sometimes what happens is this. We fail to see ourselves, as the psalmist says here, as helpless, as weak, as those who are indeed in need and the needy, as those who cannot in our own strength, in our own efforts, in our own doings, by our own activity, bring for ourselves deliverance. And as long as we don't see ourselves as the helpless, we will not turn to God in that way of total abandonment. So there has to be a right perception of ourselves and of our abilities. And we have to see that indeed we are spiritual paupers. We are always in need. We are always the ones who must turn to God as the only one who can help us. And if we call God the helper, if the Spirit, in, if the Spirit indeed is the helper for us, to us, in all that we go through, then this is how we will see ourselves. And I'm thankful for a God who will bring us through life experiences that break us and crush us and bring us low, very low, so that we see that we ought to see ourselves as helpless. But it's a blessed thing to consider that we can entrust ourselves and we should commit ourselves to God. It's the same thing that we see profoundly exemplified in Christ Jesus when he was on the cross and he cried out, into your hands I commit or abandon or I entrust my spirit. And that's, that's what we should always do. That's what we should always do. And I know we, we all live, not only you, but you, we all live in a society that tries to exalt self and promote self-works, the do-it-yourself philosophy, the trust in yourself and believing in yourself ideology. And that, you struggle with that. There's a tension sometimes. And you feel that you just have to maintain some kind of poise. Dear friends, the posture of the saint is one of abasement. It's one of humility. It's one of knowing that we can do nothing in and of ourselves. And therefore, we can always trust in the one who is our helper at all times. And I pray that God will help us all the more to see this, that why we go through this is to learn these truths in our experiences. And finally, the psalmist encourages himself in verse 17 by saying, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted and you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. And this is a promise I believe that God has given every saint. That he will give help. He will give comfort to all his saints in their time of need. God is a God of comfort. 
And I think that, again, for us, learning the, what comfort means is crucial and integral to our growth in grace. Because sometimes we think that comfort is relief. We think that comfort is God taking us out of pain and suffering. It isn't always the case. It is God supplying us strength to endure through our adversities. And that's how God strengthens and comforts us. Not by taking us out of trouble, but by ensuring and assuring us that He is our strength in our trouble. The storm of trouble is again, as I said before, the normative in the Christian life. Comfort is the exception. But God has promised to be to us our comfort. He is our portion. He is the one who strengthens us in that trial. And why we need to see this so vitally is this. That if we are to know this God, to walk in His grace, and to truly be conformed to the likeness of Christ in learning obedience by the things that we suffer, then we must see that God is always to us a God of comfort. In Hebrews 4 and verse 16, the writer says, that we calls on us in confidence to draw near to the throne of God's grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Is there ever a time when we are not seeking grace or don't need to be shown grace? There isn't a moment in our lives where we can do without the grace and mercy and help of God. There is not a single moment. And so God, in His grace, truly is acting for our good. I think it was Martin Luther that said that it is in the times, and I'm paraphrasing him, it is in the times of tragedy and difficulty that we learn some things about ourselves. And one of the things we learn about ourselves is that it is when we are going through the pain as a result of that tragedy. When we are going through that, we are suspicious of God's goodness towards us. And that's the sad part. But it helps us to see something about our heart perspective that needs to be changed. It needs to be reoriented so that we will trust in God in this way. That God indeed is gracious towards us, even in the midst of our affliction. So dear friends, how should we live in this fallen and sin-ravaged world when we face trouble, when we are saddened by the trouble that we face, when we are overburdened, as it were, when we do feel as if God is no longer near, as if the ear of God is not open and attentive to our cry, what should we do? Well, 
As we have seen, the psalmist has helped us to see that this life of faith is a life that is lived by continually entrusting ourselves to God, who indeed is a God of comfort, and that we can confidently know that he is trustworthy, and that he will do always what is best for us and what will bring him most glory. And as a sculptor who is molding and shaping the lump of clay, and when there is a tiny defect, he will mash it down and he will begin again. We should always trust that God is going to design and shape and mold us in such a way that we will be vessels of honor, that we will be vessels that can even be used of him to be merciful unto others as conduits of his mercy. So everything that we go through, whether in your personal circumstance or in the larger context, it is for the glory and honor of God. And it is for your good as well. And God says to us, to each of you, trust me. Trust me. And I think that in the light of all of this, it is hard to conceive that our suffering is actually resulting in something. And we think sometimes it's vain, but it never is. Never. We can look to the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. We can see how he is the suffering servant, stepped into our fragmented world. And how he, being bruised, being wounded, being struck for our transgressions, your transgressions, for the, for the iniquities of his people, he bore all of that. He did that for the glory of God, but for your good as well, for the good of his people. And we can know that this same Jesus, who was wounded for us, sympathizes with us when we are wounded. And that when we are bruised, he will treat us tenderly, gently, to nurture us up, to grow us up in grace. And that for a time, just for the here and now, the pain that you experience, the discomfort of this world and life, is indeed producing fruit to the glory, to the honor, and to the praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will all be encouraged in this same fashion, and that we will live in such a way that tells of who this God is, that he is a loving God. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are before you again this day, knowing, O oh Lord, that we have so much sin, we have so much that has weighed us down, we have so much, O oh God, that we have not cast and rolled off to you out of distrust, out of, O oh God, thinking that we can handle in our own strength, out of not 
knowing you as you have revealed yourself to be and trusting you as those who indeed you have loved and chosen. Forgive us, we pray. Help us, O Lord, to see that in the midst of all of our pain in this world, that you are God who is near always. You hold us and uphold us. You strengthen us. And even when you remind us that we are weak, it is so that your strength will be perfected in us. Lord, help us to rejoice in our trials. Help us to see, O God, that your wisdom and grace indeed is right and sufficient unto our every need. And help us to always look to Christ Jesus in whom we know to be the author and the perfecter of our faith and that we should trust him for he will bring us into glory. And this we pray and thankfully are confident that you have heard us because we have asked in his name. Amen.